Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Throughout the University of Tulsa's academic year, the School of Art there has been celebrating the 125th anniversary of noted artist, a member of the Dallas Nine, and former professor of art at the university, Alexander Hogue, with two student-curated exhibitions. The first featured the work of the artist back in the fall. The second, currently on display, Hogue 125-inspired Oklahoma Landscapes, is a juried exhibition featuring contemporary artists who are responding to Hogue's creative output. That output spanned much of the 20th century. Today is the anniversary of Hogue's birth, and the artist's daughter, Olivia Hogue Mourinho, will speak this afternoon on the artist's legacy, and the prizes will be awarded for the exhibit. It all gets underway at 5 o'clock this afternoon at the School of Art in Phillips Hall on the University of Tulsa campus. And Olivia Mourinho joins me today to speak on her father's work and the exhibition. She's an artist and teacher in her own right, and she's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Olivia Hogue Mourinho, welcome to Studio Tulsa. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Well, it's great fun to see you again. Yeah. Alexander Hogue, 125, his 125th birthday. This is an artist that is always called part of the Dallas Nine, but a majority of his working career was right here in Tulsa. And I think Tulsa should claim him. And what I'm really fascinated to see is that, uh, you know, on the 100th anniversary, there wasn't a whole lot done here in the city as far as celebrating his legacy. It seems like for the 125th, all the stops are out. There's the shows here at the University of Tulsa and a new exhibit at Philbrook. That's right. We've got an amazing person here at TU who is the driver behind a lot of this here at school, and that's Kirsten Olds. And uh, she has really made this happen. So hats off. Yeah, this has been an interesting uh, two exhibitions. The first featured your father's work, quite a bit of it held by the University of Tulsa from when he was an art professor here. The second has been an open juried exhibition for artists that are inspired by his work. And that is what is on display now. It's called Hogue 125 Inspired Oklahoma Landscapes, which are on display. Obviously, this was a student-curated show. And what was your first initial impressions as you walked through the gallery and seeing artists sort of respond to your father's work? Well, I was very pleased to see uh, how many mediums were represented and the wide range, in some cases, of where the artists came from. There was a submission from Mexico City, which was pretty wonderful. It was very fragile. I couldn't believe it got there. <laughs> and uh, it was broad and varied and beautifully installed and a really satisfying thing to look at. You know, when, you, when I looked through the gallery, it looked like a lot of artists were really drawn to, again, this one period of, of your father's output, which was the drought series, uh, which the Dust Bowl series, if you will, erosion, mm-hmm. uh, often people refer to it, and a larger theme of responding to how humans affect the natural environment. And that seemed to be a, a really yeah, that's cogent a, theme for a lot of the work in the show. Yeah, it's a, it's a through line. It's sort of the things that he often said and painted in that period in the 30s with uh, ecological disaster have, have become very much how we think about what's going on with land and with air and with water. Um, so all of those themes have moved to the forefront of so many people's consciousness, particularly young people. It's a real through line. I think many of those artists may have already had work 
that was thematic and resonated with what the intent of the show was. Your father was always interested in the natural world. I mean, one of the things that is interesting about his work is when you look at his work from the earliest work to his last Big Ben paintings, he was consumed with depicting the natural world and oftentimes man's effect on it in a variety of ways. But would you say he was a conservationist from from the start as far as his... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And very much a word that he used. Um, yes, it would be too early to just call him an environmentalist at yeah. that particular point. Yeah, they were they were talking conservation. He was very aware of the current thinking about uh, reforestation and the direction of a plow furrow and what to do about irrigation and uh, the fact that heavily irrigated lands were salting up and what was happening to the aquifers. All of these issues were being discussed mostly in print in his experience. And he very much followed that, but some of it he just saw and thought about. In the first exhibit, one of the revelations was seeing his thought process, which was one of the wonderful things that exhibit did, was give us a a glimpse into how he thought about the work he created. and, And not only from the subject matter, but to the classical forms and how I place a particular thing in the, within the painting and how where that belongs and why it needs to be there and it can't be any other place. I thought that was really some of the most interesting parts of that first uh, show. Yeah. And obviously he was a person who thought deeply about the act of painting because he had to teach it. <laughs> right. <laughs> one, one of the pleasures for me in the fall semester show also curated and put together by students in Kristen's class, was that in the archives at McFarland, they, in special collections, um, someone pulled and enlarged and reproduced a letter to a beginning student. And he made little drawings of geometrical forms and basically taught a semester of Fundamentals one <laughs> in a four-page letter to somebody, and in the middle of it says, don't be timid. <laughs> but uh, what, what amused me was one of the little pencil line drawings to the side is the water tank that's in Avalanche by Wind, the mm-hmm. painting that he did for Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. And to find the shape of that water tower, he had to write to somebody at the railroad who they, they were common in 1932. He was painting it several years later, and they were not using that shape anymore. And a guy who ran that particular, drove the engine, <laughs> went back and said, well, I think I know where one is. <laughs> and so he found the correct water tower. And there it was in this letter in a little pencil drawing. It's it great. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we don't think of him as a precisionist, but it sounds like there was at least that background in how he approached his work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not exactly. Precisionist is a term reserved for some other artists of the period. Yeah. But he, his um, imagery is deeply researched. Yeah. Um, and he would, he would work to find the accurate thing to work from. Probably because in 1919 and 21. He was earning a living as a commercial illustrator, and he had tear files, as all illustrators do. 
And so if he had to reproduce the shape of a car or a water tank or (laughs) whatever was pertinent, he went to those images to check for accuracy. How do do you think being a commercial artist at one point, an illustrator, affect his overall work? Do you you see that illustrator's hand in a lot of his work? I see it in his fluency in moving between appropriate graphic styles given whatever his assignment was. He did book illustration. Mm -hmm. He did editorial cartoons during the war. He redrew photographs from World War I battlefront photography in order to reproduce it in a newspaper. Um, He made advertisements for milk carton tops, you know. (laughs) And the basis of all of that was not so much the... um, an illustrational approach to imagery as it was grounded in his training in hand lettering, which, of course, there weren't fonts. You know, (laughs) this was still letterpress printing for books. And um, so if you wanted a variation on an alphabet for an advertisement, you know, something soft and frilly for face cream and something rugged for a truck, then you had to find somebody who could letter that and either work with an existing fashionable form to express those differences or invent it. And he was trained to do that. It's interesting, in the, I believe it's the 1950s maybe, mm-hmm. uh, he has a period where he's experimenting with not necessarily creating fonts, but, but stylized images sort of based on calligraphy, if you will. Oh, yeah, Totally. And, and it's, you know, it's a convergence of, of two things. One is this deep experience in earning a living with the skill of handling an alphabet and the pleasure and excitement he found in seeing Persian calligraphy at the New York Public Library collection in the 20s. And he very, very responsive to that. And the other thing is, you know, what he's looking at in those explorations of form is often the negative space more than the actual alphabetic form. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of requires a double vision to look at them. You, you need to, I need to look back and forth when yeah. I'm looking at them. Yeah. One thing that was very interesting about your father's work, from the very beginning pieces that I'm aware of, you know, he was in Taos and, and part of that Taos school that was painting in a not a post-impressionist style, but it was very much that... It was of the period. It was yeah. of that period. Yeah. And then all of a sudden in the 20s and 30s, he shifts to a very more realist form, but it's almost hyper-realist and maybe some magic realism as well in how he depicted the natural landscape in the 1930s, the allegory paintings like Mother Earth Laid Bare, uh, the drought-stricken land, the crucified land, mm. uh, these sorts of things in which... He's very realistic. And, of course, that's also reflected in the times. There was a social realism movement, which he's very much a part of. And then in the 40s, when abstraction comes in, he jettisons what he's behind and tries to embark on a new path. He finds a few different things that he's trying to work with. Uh, There's a very uh, often reproduced uh, print of a horse race in which it's there's so many elements in there that there's it, there's one that sort of strikes me of some of the English uh, linoleum print illustrators of the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And, 
And yet there's also this sort of modernist uh, yeah. take and, and postmodernism take. Yeah. And then he, eventually he, he returns to these very large-scale canvases of Big Ben where he's back in the natural world again. So he really has this wonderful arc to his yeah. work. Yeah. Uh, as, you, as you look through the exhibit, there are a number of periods that seem to be inspired some of these artists that are in this exhibit. For example, there is one piece that really makes uh, mention of something like uh, Mother Earth Laid Bare. There's a, a, it's called Jagged Landscape by Austin Dawes. Yeah. And it's a nude form. From a life drawing class, I would assume, or at least from a model directly. And I, it was intriguing that uh, given that Mother Earth Laid Bare is the most often reproduced piece, most often associated with the career image, yeah. um, it was intriguing that only one figurative piece sort of riffing off that relationship uh, arrived in the show. Yeah. And um, the jagged earth part was interesting. It was all very warm colors. Yeah, warm colors, very stylized. I mean, it's almost landscape, but it, it again, has that same very much it's a figurative piece that just happens to be a landscape. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh. uh, my guest today is Olivia Hogue Mourinho. She is the daughter of Alexander Hogue, and she was here in Tulsa to commemorate the 125th anniversary of his birth. There'll be a birthday celebration at the namesake Alexander Hogue Gallery this afternoon uh, from 5 to 6. She'll have a talk and a reception and then a reception afterwards. Alexander Hogue 125, Inspired Oklahoma Landscapes, is the second part of a two-part exhibit, this time featuring contemporary Oklahoma or even some from outside of Oklahoma artists who are responding to Hogue's work, and it's on display at the Hogue Gallery through May 9th. You mentioned earlier, says one of the things that really struck your mind uh, was that the fact that so many genres are represented, and there's a number of fiber art pieces yes. that are part of some by a well-known Tulsa artist, Jean Ann Fowler, And uh, again, these pieces sort of reflect on that conservation ethos or, or how man sort of impacts yeah. the, the, the natural environment. In the case of Fowler's work, uh, you know, it's this fiber art work where she's created these fiber versions of river stones. And of course, there's a, this river that runs through the middle yeah. of the piece. It's called A River Runs Through Us. And uh, the us is capitalized. So it also reads US. US. Yeah, but, but it could be us as yeah. well. Yeah. And ag again, it's just this statement of humans' relationship with the natural wor yeah. world. And there so much of his work, you know, was cited around canyons um, when he was on plein air field trips. They often were working within canyons. Yeah. A couple other works that really harken back uh, to some of his work was uh, there's a, a lithograph by Kristen Kuhn called Bloated Boulevard, and it's a lithograph of roadkill, actually. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of the piece that, that it sort of reminded me of, but, but there was also this theme of the despoiled landscape that went through a lot of his work. Yeah. Not only the erosion series, but a lot of other stuff as yeah. well. That was sort of a... Yeah, there's the, the inkjet yeah. one was uh -huh. the very large print. Uh, focuses on a... Um, a burned tree. A burned tree. That is still standing. It's still standing in the midst of a forest with a very small person looking at it. Yeah. Kind of our proportional relationship. What was your response when uh, Kirsten Olds came to you and said, 
hey, we want to do these two exhibitions. What was your What were your thoughts? I thought she was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she is such a force for good. And, <laughs> you know, the first semester was a, a mixture of grad students and undergraduates. They were divided up, and each of them handled, each group handled some portion of what it is to put an exhibition together. The most thrilling thing to me personally about that semester's work, and I'll get to the other one in a minute, is that they actually made use of the archival material in special collections at McFarland Library. Uh, my father was very intent to make certain that TU had a replica of the files in the American Art Archives at the Smithsonian. But he also added to the file here at TU things that are not in the National Archive. And then, additionally, he gifted special collections with significant works of art. And so the students had both real work to curate and write wall labels about and consider interpretations of and to consider what juxtapositions in a gallery bring new meanings to the viewer. They were wonderful. Um, And it was just, it was terrific. Now, this semester's class is, as I understand it, graduate students, and their task in museum management was to explore what it takes to put on a juried exhibition. What are the legal ramifications of an application form, an entry form? Mm -hmm. What do you have to cover in that language? What do you do about filing it? Who takes care of all the measurements? Is it really going to fit in the gallery? Um, There's so many you know, ultimately bureaucratic details behind the scenes. And if you don't know what they are, it's very difficult to walk into a new job in a museum and begin that task. So this has been an incredible kind of practicum in what it means to curate. What does it mean to put on an exhibition? And that that goes right down to the details of will it fit on the wall well, measurements have to be accurate. I've been in a situation once in a museum <laughs> when the measurements were not accurate, and it was a problem. <laughs> um, so they did that. They also set up the juxtapositions within the gallery of these works that were coming in. And coming up with the thematic material that sort of connects exactly, it to the source material. to attract material. people to enter the show. You, yeah. you need an, a, an interesting and intriguing handle that people want to grab hold of and work with. So the idea that landscape could be inspired by Alexander Hogue in a number of varied and different ways, whether physical or craft-based or metaphorical, is a, both a broad enough theme to allow artists to look at their repertoire and go, oh, but this is the best thing I've done in the last six months, and this totally fits, mm-hmm. and go ahead and enter a work that's already done. I as a former working artist, I would suspect that very few of them produced a work explicitly for this show. That's usually not what happens just yeah. because of the practical means of time and preparation. So what is intriguing to me is the variety of things that the class, the project, attracted, the wide variety of media, which was just terrific, And uh, from some of them, the statements of how they felt their work related to his. So all in all, quite wonderful. As as we approach tomorrow, as we speak today, it will be the 125th anniversary. I mean, there are certain pieces that are universally beloved. Philbrook Museum, Mother Earth Laid Bare is the most requested 
art object of that entire collection. It goes around the world. <laughs> yeah. uh, but wh- where do you think he his legacy is as far as how people appreciate the work over that long period, which transcends... 70 years. 70 years and going from house school sort of style paintings to hyper-realist, really, in the 1980s and early 90s. Yeah, it's... Um... Susie Khalil said this in her book called Alexander Hogue, American Visionary, because she was grappling with it, as many art historians in the past writing have done. And that is that because, to a casual eye, he appears to have kind of hop-skipped and jumped between styles and mediums and approaches to subject matter and commercial art and fine art and, you know, all over the map. What was a revelation to me when she curated uh, a show that then was exhibited in many variants after that, uh, beginning at the Museum of South Texas in Corpus Christi, what was a revelation to me in that show was that all of that work was entirely united by the physicality of how the work was made. It was a fingerprint on everything. Mm -hmm. And if you look for that, then there aren't these different spots on the map that seem non-related. They are entirely interconnected and related. And because I had never seen the early work in that complete a form, I had only seen it growing up in reproduction, it was stunning to me, the unity of the work and it. If you're looking at that, it moves straight past, whether it's abstract or modern or dust-bold or commercial or anything. It is one body of work. I always also felt that he was teaching. And, you know, when the styles that brought him fame became yesterday's news, he has to figure out a way to be relevant in order to teach a new generation. You know, yeah, these are all the GIs coming back on the GI succeeding, Bill. Succeeding generations, you know, here's what's happening now in art as opposed to learning something that was 20 years ago. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, uh, the other part is that I think uh, artists are often criticized for finding a subject and just sticking with it and never seeming to grow. Here's an artist that did move with the times, tried to find always a way to be relevant in the conversation, and then he's accused of not <laughs> committing to one <laughs> or another, which is it's sort of interesting, a catch-22, yeah. if yeah, you Yeah, know. totally. <laughs> well, Olivia, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much oh, for joining us. Thank you so much. Olivia Hogue Mourinho, the daughter of Alexander Hogue, who will help commemorate the 125th anniversary of his birth today as a part of the University of Tulsa's celebration Hogue 125. Hogue-inspired Oklahoma Landscapes is on display at his namesake gallery, the Alexander Hogue Gallery, now through March 9th. And she'll be speaking this afternoon at 5 o'clock in Phillips Hall, followed by a reception in the gallery. Also, if you'd like to see more Alexander Hogue, there's also an exhibit at Philbrook, also commemorating this Tulsa artist's 125th anniversary. You're listening to Studio Tulsa. Here's the comments of Mark Dara. While Oklahoma often revels in its colorful past, it's invested in keeping the bloody stains of its history hidden. Our state has a treacherous secret it now struggles to keep in the deep caverns of the past. 
the pre-statehood divestiture of Indian lands in eastern Oklahoma and the transfer of natural resources to white settlers, speculators, oil tycoons, and ranchers. Angie Debo, the late historian, wrote that liquidating Oklahoma's tribal holdings in the last part of the 19th century and early 20th century was a gigantic blunder that ended a hopeful experiment in Indian development, destroyed a unique civilization, and degraded thousands of individuals. This is an understatement. In summary, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Muscogee, Cherokee, and Seminole lost their lands in the southeast in return for most of present-day Oklahoma for perpetuity. Because of Civil War alliances with the Confederacy, the five tribes lost the western half of the state. Despite solemn treaty promises, the federal government failed to keep white settlers out of Indian lands. Each of these five nations owned their lands in common, meaning every tribal member owned the whole, but none owned individual tracts, kind of like the national parks are owned. Each tribe had its own law and courts, but no jurisdiction over white settlers. The federal courts had little control over the lawless desperados of Indian territory, and even less of white squatters and permitted residents. By 1890, non-Indians made up over 60% of the population of eastern Oklahoma. In the late 1800s, Congress passed laws requiring that Indian lands owned in common be divided up and individual lots distributed to individual Indians with surplus properties sold or held for white settlement. The five tribes each negotiated agreements to do this as the best of no good options. For most tribal members, the concept of singular ownership of property made as much sense as owning air. Predatory private interests snatched much of the land as soon as the properties were distributed and tribal controls lessened. Political patronage guided the appointment of federal administrators for land transfers, many of whom were incompetent, ignorant, and or corrupt. A guardianship system to protect Indian rights utterly failed, particularly after the discovery of oil, resulting in the sale of valuable mineral rights for pennies. In the meantime, mixed-blood tribal members and land speculators pushed to remove restrictions designed to protect Indian ownership of the allotted lands so resource-rich properties could be acquired for cheap. Historian Debo describes the Indian dispossession as an orgy of exploitation, almost beyond belief. Her book, And Still the Waters Run, the seminal work on the destruction of the five great tribes and the dispossession of their lands, is to Oklahoma what Scott Ellsworth's book, Death in a Promised Land, on the 1921 racial atrocities, is to Tulsa. Originally published by Princeton University Press in 1940, and still the waters run, unravels in detail a complicated public-private swindle featuring many forces and players to take land, resources, and wealth from the five great tribes and put them into the hands of white people. Realizing the stain and the secrets of this so dark episode, the University of Oklahoma Press refrained from publishing this very well-researched 
and documented manuscript. Read Angie Debo's and still the waters run. After being dumbfounded and appalled, you'll find yourself asking once again, why didn't I know this? Why weren't we taught? Comments of Mark Darrow. He's a local attorney and a contributor to Studio Tulsa. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.